This week on the BOAG World Show, we look at the importance of working collaboratively with colleagues and stakeholders. We look at why this matters and where we should start improving our skills. This week's show is sponsored by Miro and Gather Content. Show a podcast about all aspects of user experience design, digital transformation, strategy, working in digital, and things like that. My name is Paul Bag, and joining me as always is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Paul. Uh, I apologise for sounding a bit funny this week. I'm I'm calling in from the kitchen rather than the so office. So does that <laughs> does that mean you're you're de- you're decorating your office? Yes. Yes. Ah. Uh, so is it going to be all new, spangly, and new and nice, not- and maybe even tidy? Maybe. You never know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so I suddenly thought, ah, all microphones and proper stuff and all that kind of thing is, you know, tucked away for the moment. So yeah, I had to yeah. get my little USB mic out and oh, sit no. it on top of my laptop. But anyway, I'm still here. It'll do the job. It's good enough, isn't it? We, You know. Exactly. For, um, it's not like we're professionals. <laughs> so... Yeah, so it's, it's Halloween at time of recording. Yes, happy Halloween, Paul. Uh, yeah. It means nothing uh, to me. Maybe it does, it's, maybe oh, it's it an age to you. thing. Perhaps it is. It Because it was never a thing when we were kids particularly, was it? No, not at all. I just think it's, you know, daft American stuff. Sorry, Americans who are listening, but I... Well, no, Something, I, else, something else we've, you know, it's a bit like, you know, my my mother and father, when he was alive, had the same opinion on Father's Day. It was like that yeah. wasn't a thing when they were a kid. Mother's Day was, Father's Day wasn't, and it's just another, you know, cynical um, exercise on getting more money out of us and all this kind of thing. And I'm I kind of the same about Halloween. It's just like, yeah. See, <laughs> now, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't, and that's really interesting because I thought, I half wondered whether my, my um, uh, lack of, involvement in halloween as a kid was because i grew up in a kind of conservative christian household and they disapproved of it or something but they never really talked about it as well, being I, I think there's a little bit of that because i grew up in a very very kind of liberal guardian reading don't approve of that sort of thing either household ah, okay. um, but it wasn't really a thing not like no, it is I, now no it, no it wasn't it, but but i gotta say i quite like it I really? think it's a nice. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a. Uh, other than Christmas, I would say it's my favourite holiday. Even though, because everybody gets dressed up and it's silly and it's fun, I like it. You're a, you're you definitely are an old man, <laughs> grouchy. <laughs> but I would agree, it is an American tradition, and and so should on principle annoy me because you know it's an American thing, not a British thing. But actually, I think it's a cool British thing. Oh, sorry, American thing. It's so all I think right. We... Just don't expect me to do it. Or they're saying yeah. that I would happily do it with the little tiny kids. So, yeah, maybe I'm just being, uh, you know, two-faced of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'll do it with your grandchildren. You know you will. Oh, yeah. But uh, I don't, I don't remember doing it with my kids, other than walking up and down the lane to knock on people's doors. But I wasn't kind of dressed up or anything. I don't think. No. Maybe I was. Maybe I blotted it from my mind. Who knows? Well, you're a miserable <laughs> ass is all I can say. There you go. 
So yes, so we've got nothing, nothing particularly planned today uh, as a, a Halloween special because, as you can tell, both of us are grumpy, miserable sods. <laughs> um, and Brexit's not happening today now, so so we can't celebrate or commiserate leaving the EU. So that's not a thing either. So all in all, it's just a wet, miserable Thursday. Friday. Friday. It's Friday. That's it's, a good thing. It's not Friday, Paul. Look on the top right of your screen. Oh, no, it's Thursday. <laughs> i tell you why I think it's Friday. Damn, that's really depressing. It's because tomorrow I'm not... I'm going to a conference, so it's not a normal oh, yeah, day may as, work. may as well be Friday then. Yeah, good ass. Well, no, because I've got to speak at the bloody conference. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't just... I don't ever get to go just to conferences and sit there. I've always end up doing something. Yeah, they are good fun going to. I haven't been to one for ages. I must. Well, this is just a little thing in Cheltenham that you were going to come to, and you know, never got around to it as normal. All talk, no action. That's your trouble. Yeah, on that one, I can't argue. I had actually completely forgotten about it. There you go. Well, there you go. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. So, I will do. So, so yes. I was gonna. I was gonna do an introductory bit. I wasn't going to talk about Halloween at all, and I wasn't going to talk about. I was going to talk about electric blankets. Hmm? I don't. I've ever had an electric blanket. Oh, have that's you not true. Not? I have when it, you know when I, we used to go on holiday to Scotland a lot when I was a kid, and usually in the summer, but we occasionally would go in the winter, and then you'd need one. Yeah, I love an electric blanket. Ooh, yeah. Really? To, to have. Yeah, to have a bed that you feel like someone's just been sleeping in before you've got in it. There's nothing quite like. See, I <laughs> quite like not. It can't be too cold, but I quite like getting into sort of cool, crisp sheets. Than well, no, cold. I do in the summer. Yeah, but in the winter, an electric blanket is lovely. Okay, but I've been I've been having major trauma. It just it makes you realise how blisteringly bad most things are designed in the world right that's that is one of the things one of the things i hate about doing my job right is it makes you acutely aware of every shit design decision in the world i am now i'm now on my third electric blanket trying to find one that i consider acceptable because they they, they well you think how can you screw up an electric blanket right right so it doesn't electrocute you. There's one. It, it heats up. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. So presuming its its basic functions are, are working, yeah. how can you screw it up? But you can. <laughs> do you know what? And this is... Do you know what it comes down to? It's where people blindly copy what other people have done before with never questioning it, right? And you see this in digital all the time as well. It's like, um, oh, I'm going to copy and paste... Uh, um, uh, I'm going to copy and paste uh, country drop-down lists with every country in the world, even though they're not relevant to me. Or just because somebody else has done something dumb in the past doesn't mean you need to. Right. Lewis has pointed out one problem with them, which is that they, they often have got unbreathable material. They're like plasticky material, which is horrible to sleep on. But that yeah. they are getting better on. What they're not getting better on, what they insist on doing copying one another is the position of the the where the cable plugs into the electric blanket right so there's a there's a plastic lump Lump. basically and they always put it right under your elbow when you're sitting in bed 
<laughs> it's incredible. Every single one. Why they can't just put it at the top of the blooming blanket underneath your pillow, that would be the logical place to put it. But no, no, we're going to put it in the worst possible position. Well, surely by so, your feet would be the right place to put it. Well, yeah, except you need the you need the cable in order to adjust the you know the temperature. Yeah, okay, but you know, there's another there's another aspect to this, and it's cost. Maybe not with what you just said, but I had a friend of mine who um, spent years developing these LED um, safety lights, exit lights, that kind of thing, and it was before LED became, really became a thing. So it was kind of ahead of its curve. Uh, blah 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 they lasted for 25 years which was five times longer than the the kind of standard one um you know but it cost twice as much to produce yeah Uh, but so twice as much but lasted five times as long and it was more efficient you know didn't use as much power blah 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 all these kind of things they thought they were onto an absolute winner but when it came down to it the people specking out buildings just wanted the cheapest item yeah end of Mm -hmm. and it's like and they couldn't. There's something they just couldn't see coming, uh, and it, you know, and the, the the venture ended up failing because of that. Because they felt they had such a better project product, but in some cases, you know, cost is always going to get in the way. What What's interesting there is that, um, and that's something again that I think we come across as digital people sometimes is the difference between the person buying and the person using, right? Okay. So. Yeah. You know, in that case, they didn't care that it mm. was not the cheapest because they weren't having to live it, live in it, and exactly. replace the replace the lights all the time. So they just wanted the cheapest version. But then the end user would have appreciated it because they're the ones that have to live with it. And right, the exactly. great the great example of that is frigging um, enterprise level software, right? That is always horrendously designed. And an absolute nightmare. But the people buying that software are not the people that have to use it every day. Intranets are a great example of that. Mm-hmm. So they always just go with the off-the-shelf, simplest solution that ticks all the right boxes because they don't have to live with it day in and day out. Mm. And it happens all the time. You get it in loads of different areas. So That yeah. still happens today. Every, I know. Every day. I've, th- just, I've just republished a post about intranet design that i wrote i don't know a couple of years ago and i'm really busy at the moment so i didn't have time to write a new post so i thought i'll republish an old one let's find a post and i saw this internet when i thought i expect things have changed but no no it's just as shit as it always was nobody spends any money on intranets whatsoever but well that's not true though from what you said they spend loads of money on intranets yeah, but yeah. in the wrong way yes they still have, you know. Uh, I, I don't want to. We always go point at SharePoint and go. It, it's it's not SharePoint isn't as bad as it once was, but it's no. it's a that was always the IT departments. You know, we use Microsoft, so that's the thing. That's the tool that we're going to use for this. Shove it in. Um, it works. Off you go, kind of thing. And everyone goes in there and goes, "Well, I don't know how to use this, so don't don't use it." And then it's just yeah. this kind of white elephant. Um, yeah. But the same applies for loads of different software. My yeah, keep falling out. It's like companies get their uh, can wrap their heads around the idea of spending money on on stuff that is customer facing because that will increase revenue, right? Mm. But they can't get that wrap their heads around the fact that you can spend design money on internal staff and no, it won't increase revenue, but it will increase efficiency, yeah. right? 
but they don't seem to worry about that. But anyway. Anyway, I'm very interested by your thought oh, for the day. I think, but just one more thought on that, and it is relevant. All right. I think it's a lack of collaboration, Paul, between teams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That, which is what we're talking about in today's podcast. Mark has very kindly segued into something that isn't the topic yet. Because before we get onto the subject of collaboration, there's something much more important to talk about, which is your thought for the day, Marcus, which is my role on the podcast. Is this where you're going to like resign live on show or are you going... <laughs> Are you demanding more pay or a bigger role? What's going? Is this some kind of job negotiation going on here? Well, uh, well, why don't you just have a listen, Paul? Okay, I will. <laughs> so last week I wandered off into a completely non-digital, non-work-related <laughs> place. So I thought, well, what can I talk about that's really close to home? And I thought, well, the podcast was the first thing that came into my head. And then I thought. Uh, I don't really. I've, I think I've talked about editing software and stuff like yeah. that in the past, but I've, I've never really talked about um, my role on the podcast, which is what mm. this is entitled. Um, and it's taken me a while to realise, but I think my main job on this show is to be a foil for you, Paul. Mm. Kind of like um, you know, you know, like a, we're, we're a comedy. <laughs> double act kind of thing <laughs> not sure which one's which role but anyway no um and i i used to worry a little bit um about that i wasn't prepared enough or that i wasn't pulling my weight somehow uh and uh, i don't think either of those things actually are things i should be worrying about uh, and i thought i'd talk about them so looking at being prepared first after many years i realized that me being prepared took some of the spontaneity out of what we do. Yeah. Uh, we used to agree things like, I'll take this question, then you take that one, and then I'll do that one. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, it, it was kind of like you're waiting for me to pick up the question, all this kind of thing. And it always sounded a little forced and took mm -hmm. away from what I'm really meant to be doing, I think, which has taken me a while to realise, which is trying to make things sound as natural as possible and, dare I say it, as entertaining as it can be. So that's, that's the being prepared thing. I guess what I'm saying here is that sometimes, even at work, where we're meant to be super, super organised, you need to just ride with things uh, and try to react for the best results, um, even if mm -hmm. that is a little bit scary. It brings on a pressure of its own, I suppose. So, yeah, yeah where, where I put myself under pressure for the show, I make up without having to do any homework, which is kind of cool. Uh, although that's not strictly true at the moment. So moving on to pulling my weight. Um, Obviously, I do this section of the show now, so I do do a little bit of homework, but I haven't always done that. Last last series, I didn't do anything, and so I just turn up and go, what's, what's going to happen this week? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, doing this section does kind of go a long way to assuaging any kind of guilt I might have, which isn't much. Um, but, again, over the years, I realised that sometimes I've got a lot to say on certain shows, and on other, other shows, I don't. And mm. the thing is, that's completely fine. That's how it should be. So mm. similarly to my previous point, if I'm constantly trying to butt in and add my point and show that I'm here uh, and have lots to add, it starts to sound forced again. Um, mm. So just two thoughts, really. One is being prepared isn't always the best approach. Sometimes ad-libbing is great because it'll sound more natural. Uh, and two, sometimes it's okay to just sit back and not input much. So that's my I'd, fairly short I'd, thought for the day. It's a short thought for the day, but it's actually really applicable in all kinds of territories as well because you know I, you don't 
there, I, I remember when I was young, right, and I've still <laughs> got this in me, <laughs> that, that you feel this, uh, because of your own insecurity um, and this desire to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. you ha- feel like you have to say a lot and contribute all the time to every conversation, mm-hmm. even though you might not necessarily have anything in particular to contribute. Um, and And I think... Actually, that undermines sometimes your, comp- your the confidence you're projecting. And one of the things that I think works well about you, because we play quite opposite roles, really, in a way. You know, I'm the bouncy, enthusiastic one that can never shut up. And you're this kind of calm individual that just puts in things every now and again. And actually, I think that probably does you more credit than it does me. <laughs> You know, so I make up for it I, by saying daft things as well, Paul. Though, well, yeah, of course, we both we're both idiots in our own way, but uh, but my point, yeah, it, it, my point is is that actually there, there's often this be- belief that in order to say be seen as the expert or to be seen as a leader in your field, you have to be that kind of mouthy individual that I am, and that's not actually true. You know, I think, you you know, whatever your role. So I think that's a really interesting one. And I think the other thing, which does lead nicely onto the topic for today's show, is the fact that we have worked so closely together for so long. And we're used to collaborating and, and we're very aware of each other's strengths and weaknesses that that we know how to to work well and, um, and effectively together. So I can sense a show where, okay, Marcus has got a lot he wants to say on this and I can back off a little bit. And then I can sense other shows where you've obviously got bugger all to say. And so I fill in the gaps and we support one another like that. And yeah. so, you know, and that's the way it should be. And, and also, if you want to follow this through to its, its logical conclusion, one of the things that I think makes collaboration very difficult for a lot of people is they really struggle with personality differences and i always go back to the us as three founders of headscape Mm. um you know that me and chris is probably a bigger bigger difference than me and you you know, he is, he is, I've said this before on the show, a very details orientated person, a very considered person, um, you know, and, and it's very easy for me as somebody who's very big picture and very spontaneous and, you know, r- running in without thinking to clash with someone like that. But actually, you come to realize that those differences are where the strengths lie. And, and it's the same with you and me as well. I think if it was two people like me, it wouldn't work. And if mm. it was two people like you, it wouldn't work. You need that variety, don't you? We've mentioned this before on the show as well. But um, when we used to work for a company called Insights that, mm. that, that do personality tests, and the, the four major quadrants, which is red for leader, yellow for inspirer or something like that, green for helper and blue for analytical yeah data oriented person both of us are in the yellow inspirer one and chris Mm. was in the blue uh data analyst he's right at the top of the wheel the kind Mm. of with the the red and the blue sort of leader slash data person very serious individual um and we're more like sort of larking about types down the bottom well it was (laughs) it, it was interesting actually because i think we actually split 
quite well because if I remember correctly, he was kind of reds, which were leader, and blues, which was analytical. Mm-hmm. You were mainly yellows yes. with some green involved, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was some yellow and some red so Mm -hmm. i was you know so so actually we split the quadrant quite nicely between us you know um and and i think that getting those right partners and those right working relationships with people is so so important you know you need that mix but you also you need people that recognize that people who are not like them are still good and of value. And I think that was one of my big weaknesses for many, many years, is I had this tendency of seeing anybody who wasn't like me as a bit slow, a bit indecisive, a faffer, you know, and all of those kinds of things. Mm. I mean, if um, anything, the, the opposite is true. Um, if you've got a variety of people, then you're probably going to end up with a better thing, whatever oh, the thing is you're at, the, at the end uh, of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, much, you know, a better and probably delivered ultimately faster as well, because, you know, you're not making so many mistakes. I tend to make a lot of mistakes in my, you know, with my approach to to the world. You could, you could, you could uh, compare this to pretty much anything sporting analogy. You know, a team has to be made up of of people with loads of different skills. Um, Yeah. And you could say that they also need to be made up of a load of different personalities. You need to have leaders, you need to have followers, etc., etc. You need to have people who are, you know, need to be kicked up the arse to do well and others who need to have an arm around them. You know, mm. it, it takes all sorts for, to, for success. I saw a great TED video once, um, which showed a piece of video. And it was at some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of vaguely hippie-ish event lots of middle class people pretending to be hippies the kind of thing chris goes to chris scott you know llama tree llama tree yeah 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 um so so they would there was a a piece of video of this so there's lots of people sitting around on the grass eating picnics and that kind of stuff and there was one guy who who just decided to get up and start dancing right there was no music going and he he was just dancing Peace right love, baby <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so uh, uh, and and then over time another guy got up and started dancing with him and more and more people got up and joined him right yeah uh, and the the guy the guy in the ted talk said who's the real leader there who's the lead, who led that right and everybody said, you know, the kind of general consensus was the guy who stood up and started dancing. But actually, this guy argued, no, it wasn't. It was the second guy. Mm. The guy that was willing to join him, that was willing to take a part, part in that and turn it into... Because, and you notice in the video that it took a long time before that, that the first guy was joined by the second and then once the second was there it happened very quickly i don't know what the point of this is other than to say (laughs) that you know that there is something very powerful about not just being that the perceived leader but being that support Mm. that comes in very quickly and actually that's a really important position so yeah that's true actually i mean i think that's a, a major part of particularly kind of social media advertising is this idea of if you say something great about somebody else or a product or whatever in kind of passing, 
it's so much more it's so much stronger than if it's like let's make a big advert for it um, yeah and we all know that we all know that if we really want to push someone at work or something like that we'll kind of talk about them in those kind of passing terms but it's so much more powerful yeah, yeah absolutely so anyway, I, that, this all leads on very well to what we're talking about, which is this idea of collaboration, teamwork, that kind of thing. And I think we've already touched on some of the good reasons to do it. Um, cool. You know, but but we'll there, are, there are others. Yeah, we're <laughs> done. We're done. That's it. So, I mean, I, there there are more cynical reasons as well. We've, we've looked at the, the kind of the... It improves the end product and those kinds of things. But there are more c- cynical, selfish reasons for wanting to collaborate as well. But one of the big ones for me, and the reason that I so heavily favour working in collaboration with stakeholders, I'll include people that don't need to strictly be included a lot of the time. And the reason that I do that is because it makes getting buy-in so much easier. Mm. That, you know, if people feel that they've contributed to something, then they feel a sense of ownership over it. They're less likely to reject it and they're more likely to defend it to other people as well. So so there's a huge benefit there for from involving other people. Um, and then, of course, by involving other people, you you improve the breadth and depth of your own knowledge. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the best example of this I could I could think of. Um, it's quite an old example now with, with um, Matt Curry um, at, at Wiltshire Farm Foods um, back in the day that he was a very hands-on client that was very actively engaged. Um, and, and I know of many people who would find that almost a little bit irritating. Well, we're the experts, you know? <laughs> um, but in truth... I learned enormous amounts from him about things like, you know, analytics, A-B testing, all of that quantitative side of of the web that I was really very ignorant of before before he started teaching me. And I've had that time and time again um, with clients. Um, and Lyle in the, in the chat rooms just said that he's having that at the moment with, with somebody who's come and sat next to him um, while he works. Obviously, somebody with a different skill set. And that's actually one of the things that I recommend quite a lot is to mix up teams. I'm working with, um, with one of my uh, clients runs, um, runs an agency at the moment. And I said, you know, well, where do your developers sit? Where do your designers sit? And this kind of thing. And they all sit separately um you know they sit in their separate teams and and as a result they never got that kind of cross collaboration lyle has just added that it's also painful um working with people from other uh, uh, uh skill sets and he's entirely right it is yeah it slows him down that is exactly that is a hundred percent what it does um but ultimately yeah as he just said it for me yeah Lyle, do you just want to come on the show and, and do this yeah he's just added um <laughs> no no, no don't, don't apologize no he's just added that it ultimately leads to a better product which is right and actually i don't think it will necessarily slow down the project as a whole it might slow you down a bit but probably doesn't slow down the project because you'll find that sign off is easier and all of those kinds of things why are you showing chocolate orange on the webcam? Other than I want to chocolate make you orange. Jealous. No other reason. Okay, fair enough. Mm. So getting buy-in is a really good reason. Um, 
improving the depth and breadth of your knowledge is another good reason. And of course, as by extension, then that improves your career prospects. The more you know, the more knowledgeable you are in more fields, the easier, you know, the more likely you are to get promoted within your role or the easier it makes it to run your own business at some point. Um, uh, and it, you know, it also enables you to start interacting with um kind of more complex projects the bigger a project becomes the more complex it becomes the more specialists are required to make it happen and so the more you need to be good at collaborating with those specialists Mm. you know if you're working on on relatively small websites of course you could do it all yourself you know i did for donkey's years you know in the early days of the web i coded it i wrote it i you know i designed it i did everything but once you work on websites of the kind of size that i'm working on these days you know no way there's no way i could do all of that um not just from the quantity but the depth of specialisms involved so if you have ever got ambitions to work on big projects you need to be a good collaborator and we but the trouble is we tend to avoid collaboration for the kind of reasons that that um, you know, uh, uh, Lyle has already pointed out, which is that it feels like everything takes longer, um, and Chris has just said it feels like people micromanage you to a degree, um, and you know that it can feel like sometimes you end up with worse results out of it as well because people are interfering with your part of the job and how you would do things. But I would actually argue that those things are only true if you're doing it wrong. Um, and, and that's what I want to kind of explore in a little bit more detail. But before we do that, I just want to make it clear what collaboration is not. Um, it's not about meetings, right? Um, if your collaboration consists of having a committee meeting, that's not collaboration, um, that's something else. That's getting feedback um, and accountability and that kind of thing. You're not collaborating. You're not producing anything together. You're critiquing stuff that's already been produced. So that's a different thing. Um, also, a collaboration isn't just about giving in and rolling over, right? It doesn't, you know, if you're not convinced by what someone is saying to you, then then there's more of a discussion. You need to work on it more together. So, you know, I'm the last person in the world that I think anybody would describe as a, you know, as a soft touch. Um, And, you know, I will dig my heels in when I need to. Um, But, you know, that doesn't mean I'm not a huge collaborator. Um, That makes me sound like I sympathize with the Nazis, doesn't it? I'm a huge collaborator. That's not what I meant. You know what I meant. Um, (laughs) And it's also... Collaboration is not just about asking people what they think either. So it's a very distinct thing, which we're going to get onto in a moment and and explore what that means in practice in just a second. But before we do that, I want to talk about our sponsor, which um, first sponsor, which is Gather Content, um, who've been sponsoring quite a lot of episodes this season, which is lovely of them. They are my, my, what? I was going to say, they're my favourite kind of content organising operation type thing. Gathering platform. (laughs) But honestly, I can't think of anybody else that 
does it to to any even comparable degree um they so, really so are that's a, fair, it's a fair thing to say then they are definitely it is a favorite. fair thing it's <laughs> like say i tell my son all the time he's my favorite child uh, yeah. because he's my only child <laughs> um I mean, yeah, gather content. Is, I mean, it's just the platform you use for organizing content. I'm sure there must be other ones out there, but I honestly don't know what they are. And I honestly don't care what they are. You know, I, this, this does it. Great. Lovely. Um, it's certainly a hell of a lot better than getting sent Word documents. And, oh, I'm getting that at the moment from a client. It's my own fault. They send through Word documents and it's like, yeah, okay, that's just... You're tr- you're e- they're even trying to show layout options in a Word document. It's just a bloody nightmare. What's anyway. wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> Marcus, don't e- don't bait me on this subject. This could this could derail the whole podcast if we do. Anyway, Gather Content is a content operation platform that helps your teams produce effective content at scale. And that's a really important thing. Um, The bigger your website, the bigger the benefit uh, uh, Gather Content is. Customers who use um, this platform to to manage their people, their processes, um, and obviously to produce effective content. But, you know, it's also looking not just at kind of handling and bringing content together and organizing your content assets. It's also looking at things like workflows and sign-off processes, all the things that means that you can work in an efficient way with content. So if you want to find out more about it, then please visit gathercontent.com. And they're really, drop them an email as well because they're lovely people and will happily chat with you, I'm sure. All right, so let's go back to the subject of collaboration. Um, So as I was thinking about it, there are kind of three types of collaboration that I think I engage with. And I'm sure there must be other types, but this is how I kind of organize it in my head, right? Um, There is collaborative working where you're physically working together on a, a fairly ongoing basis. Um, so for example, Lyle having someone sitting next to him, uh, to him at the moment, um, probably is an example of that. Um, I just got totally distracted then because, you know, I mentioned Lyle and I noticed he just posted something in the chat room and I saw the word swastika emoji (laughs) and, and that completely threw me. So I'm I'm not even going to read the rest of it. I'm I'm just going to presume it's not bad, and that actually it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Um, and no, Lewis, <laughs> my trigger word is not swastika. Um, oh, I mentioned Nazis. Yes, I did. That is true. Um, you can't get through any kind of conversation without mentioning Nazis these days. Um, so we've got three types of collaboration. We've got collaborative working, which is what Lyle is doing when he isn't talking about sauce stickers. We've got collaborative workshops where you bring a group of people together for a, a um, specific period of time to work on something. And then there's consult- consultation and review cycles, right? So I kind of want to just look at these in a little bit more detail. I mean, we haven't got that long, so we can't get into too much detail. But let's look at collaborative working. Um, there, uh, one, uh, so you could either have 
collaborative working within the same discipline so for example pair programming would be an example of this i don't know whether you've ever tried pair programming um where you have two developers working on the code at the same time one developer is driving and actually typing stuff in and the other person is normally navigating which means that they're kind of um you, you know inputting on direction and and you know picking up some stuff um Lyle says that he does this quite a lot um and he did some this morning um and it, it it's uh, it, as he points out it's really good for bug fixing and that kind of stuff which is um you know so it's a really well established thing within development i don't think it's as well established in maybe other fields um but i think it could work in other fields um i certainly think it could work in copywriting um uh, of having um you know two people working on copy together maybe one focusing more on content and one more on tone of voice or something like that there um it could happen with design and does actually happen in design in some ways sometimes you have a ux designer working with a ui designer so there's one person that's focusing more on the aesthetics one focusing more on the usability um but you could also get collaborative working between different disciplines so for example a designer and a coder is a very good combination so i always think of ed and dan in mm-hmm. that kind of situation or oh, oh, lee and lee, lee and, dan. and dan but yeah but uh, i always think of ed and dan because they're actually physically located you know in the same office together and they bicker like small children lee is um, two now what's that lee is two now lee's at the office now is he really yes I'll tell well, you about it was... another time. We'll yeah, that's... <laughs> ooh, ooh, I want to know all about that. That sounds interesting. So, yeah, I mean, you could imagine Lee and Dan sitting in the same room must be hell on earth for anybody sitting around them um, because they, they bicker like an old married couple. Mm-hmm. But the result is really good work. You know, Lee is, uh, as a designer, Dan is the, the front-end coder on that. And the other good combination is um, designer and copywriter. That, I think, can work really well as well, where the copy and the design are created in tandem with one another. So that's collaborative working. Then there's collaborative workshops. Um, and these are probably the most common um, in my world, at least, because you know, it's just me. Yeah. So, you know, we in our kind of role, we don't tend to do as much collaborative working, but collaborative workshops. Absolutely. I mean, there are whole loads of different uh, workshops I do. Um, There's understanding the customer journey, um, which is a kind tends to be a kind of big picture workshop. So you bring together um people that have got understanding of the customer experience obviously customers themselves but also people like customer support teams sales people marketing people that have got data on users that kind of stuff and you bring them together um in order to get a complete picture of the customer journey because the truth is in most organizations no one individual has a, an overall picture of the customer journey so doing something like that you know, is a way of collaborating to get that complete picture. Then there's collaboration around branding and you can run branding related workshops. So there's tends to be three kinds of exercises that I do in those workshops. There's the waiting room exercise, which I think I've talked about before on the show, but I'll quickly recap. Invented That's by Lee Howes. Invented by Lee Howes. Yes, the very Lee Howes that we were talking about mere moments ago. 
So, um, the, the, um, the, the way that that works is essentially you get a group of stakeholders together who have got different perspectives on the brand and you design a waiting room where um, people would come if they were coming to your organization. So they would um, talk about what's on the walls, what, you know, what furniture there is, what music's playing, those kinds of things. And out of that comes a list of words that your design should be representing, minimalistic, you know, professional, whatever those words are. Another way of doing it... Uh, what I've found over the, the years of doing that exercise is people tend to say the same thing. Well, you'll, 90% yeah. of the words will be the same across, you know, sort of airy, spacious, clean, all those kind of things. But it's it's the the surprise words that are the ones you're looking yeah. for. Like Nazi, for example. They, you know, you don't expect <laughs> anyone to say that. Um, and then, then but that... that yeah, obviously, I'm joking. But you, you can then kind of fix on that particular word and really kind of dig into the client about, do you really mean that? Uh, and, and, yeah. if, and if you, and if they do, then you've got something you can hang off the design that's really unique. So that's what's, yeah. what I found is great about that exercise. Totally agree with that. And the same is true of the second exercise that I was going to mention, which is the famous person exercise, <laughs> uh, which is you say, if your brand is a famous person, who would it be? Um, Stephen Bryce. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, so I've taken. I don't uh, with that. I do the QI thing. You know, uh, people probably don't know about QI. It's a quiz show in in Britain yeah, where yeah, yeah. Um, that if you give the predictable answer, you the give get minus ten points. So yeah. it flashes up on the screen. So I actually have cards now with a load of stereotypical people written on them. And if they say it, I hold up the appropriate card and say, you can't have that one. <laughs> um, so Marcus has just mentioned two, um, which is Barack Obama and, and Stephen Fry seem to come up um, very regularly. But what's interesting is the word, you know, why they picked that famous person. If your brand was a famous person, who would it be? Right. Oh, it's going to be Barack Obama, let's say. Um, oh, because he's charismatic, um, because he's approachable, you know, and those words help inform the design a little mm. bit. And the third exercise that I do, which really comes out of those two, is, is a collaborative mood boarding exercise where we say, OK, well, you know, we're going to split down into groups. One of you take the word charismatic. One of you take the word, you know, um, approachable. Um, or, or one, you know, and then go away and create some mood boards, you know, open up PowerPoint or whatever and drag in images that you think represent that word, drag in typefaces that represent that word, color, you know, um, examples of other websites. And we use that as a way of engaging people in the process of collaboration. Um, then there's, then there's wireframing workshop exercises that I do. So, um, uh, the two exercises that I tend to do, collaborative exercises, there are the user attention point exercise and the six up exercise. Um, the, the user attention point exercise basically um, uh, is a very simple exercise to get people to realize that users got limited attention and that you can't shove everything on a home page. Um, so what you do with that is you, you say, well, okay. Um, the average person will spend about eight seconds assessing a page. Let's say they could take in two, three items in in a second, right? So um, we'll then convert that into points. So yeah, anywhere between sixteen to 
20 whatever points you know somewhere around that that kind of view of user attention and for every element you add onto the page it's going to cost one point of user attention as a minimum but if you want people to pay uh, spend more attention on one thing than another for example more attention on your primary call to action than your privacy policy you need to give it more attention and so you get people going through this exercise. I won't go into the huge details on it because I'm going to share with you a link about that um, uh, later. Lewis has asked, can you just say navigation as an element on its own or do you have to break it down? Um, I, I, what I tend to do, Lewis, is in the very beginning of that exercise, before I tell them about user attention points, I get them to brainstorm as many items as they can think of. Um, and I actively encourage them to come up as with as many as they can think of. So they do tend to break things out. I wouldn't necessarily get them to list every single navigation item. But, for example, a header, don't let them just put header. They have to, you know, they, I encourage them to put, you know, search box, navigation, logo, that kind of thing. Another um, exercise that I like doing with that list of homepage items, which is simpler, is just saying design a mobile homepage. So you've got all this yeah. stuff. Now design a mobile homepage. And of course, what you're getting them to do is to prioritize that, the, the content yeah. because you have to put it in a list. In a, you, know, you have to put something at the top, something second, something third. And, it's, and I, I don't try and hide that. I'll say this is what you're doing. Um, yeah. It really forces people to make a decision. And if you've got quite a big group, maybe four or five groups of two or three, you can then kind of pull all the answers together and you know, crunch the numbers and come up with a, a priority that you can then run with in prototyping that can be tested so it's a yeah. really good way of prioritizing content and if you don't want to be committed to it because it's a, a mobile app then you all you do is replace the word we're designing a mobile app with we're designing a book jacket mm. and then you could talk about the yeah. front cover Cereal the box. spine yeah. Yeah, the yeah. back the inside flap etc yeah um so and then the other version so there's user attention and then there's also the six up exercise some people prefer crazy eights basically you're wireframing a lot of different ideas um i won't bother you know you can you can google both of those terms if I, you want. i've got a sales six up there it's great fun i don't often do that one anymore because you just get into madness yeah we'd yeah. like a, we'd like a 3d version of our offices please Yeah, I mean, it's because they get progressively more desperate coming up with ideas, isn't it? You know, everybody has got in their heads one idea of what the the page should look like. But when you ask them to come up with six or eight, it's like, whoa, you know. So I, I often, when they begin to struggle, I often start giving them advice. So I say, well, what if we focused on just this audience? Or what if we focused just made it more blog like or we focused on this product or uh, in order to give them a bit of guidance you don't end up with yeah 3d virtual (laughs) crap that they come up with sometimes but it's very worthwhile the reason that worthwhile uh, exercise is worthwhile is not only is it collaborative it gets them involved in the process but also educates them a little bit it gets them thinking oh there isn't just the one way of doing it i had in my head there are multiple ways that this could be approached um and then sometimes they do content workshops as well so where i'll get a group of people together and we'll do some brainstorming around what objections and questions might people have you know coming to this site why might they not want to buy what questions that 
might they have and so we brainstorm a huge list of those and then we split those down into different groups and get people to come up with bullet point responses to each of those and that becomes the basis of your content so there are loads of opportunities for running very collaborative workshops around this kind of stuff and then the final area is consultation and review um and i think this is the one that people fear the most it's like I'm going to show people my work and they're going to tell me it's shit, you know? <laughs> um, and so people don't like doing that, but actually it, it's very worthwhile doing. Um, one of the things that I do um, when I'm working on, um, say, either a prototype or even a, whole, a beta site is I do everything open out in the open, right? So all of the stakeholders can see my work as I'm doing it. So I have a development server where people can see stuff. I have um, uh, work being pushed all the time to Envision or some prototyping platform. Um, and, and, and it's totally available all the way through. But then what I do is when people go and see that, I make sure that they understand what they're looking at. So they're not just going straight to the development server and being dumped into this half-finished site. But instead, what they're seeing is a video at the beginning, right? And I normally record a short little video of me explaining, look, this is work in progress. These are the problems with it. This is where we know it's crap. This is where we think it's getting there. These are the kind of areas that we, we would appreciate feedback from. And I think that's a really key thing when it comes to any kind of um, uh, presentation. If you're ever presenting stuff, make sure that whoever you're, that whatever you're presenting has got an explanation intrinsically tied to it. So another great example is if I produce like a design concept, I almost always never send out a jpeg or send out a url with just the, the design in what i normally do is record a video presentation of me talking through the design so therefore they can't then hand it on to other people internally without that context being attached to it they can only hand on the the video they can't hand on that jpeg so to speak and i always end those presentations with some very structured feedback. I never ask people, what do you think, right? Because people have to fall back on their personal opinion. I never ask them, are you happy to sign this off, right? Because then it's, are you happy, right? And that brings them back to their personal opinion. So instead, what I do is I will ask questions like, is this in line with the business objectives? We agreed together, right? Does this represent the brand direction that we worked on together? Does this meet user needs that we identified those user audiences and those needs together, right? So if they answer yes, yes, yes to all of those, even if they personally don't like it, You've educated them to go, that's okay that you don't like it. It's still a good direction you can go in. So asking structured feedback rather than what do you think makes this whole cons uh, consultation and review process much, much easier. Um, the other piece of advice I would give around this is make yourself the center of all feedback. 
One of the common mistakes I see a lot of people make is they say, you know, especially agencies make this a lot. Um, we, yeah, oh, we want a single a single point of contact, right? And I can I, I get that because it is a, a pain in the ass with lots of people coming back to you individually. But but if you say all contact has to come through one individual, then that individual is doing all of the negotiation over the 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 design or the whatever themselves and they're having the direct impact um, in, um conversations with the people that ultimately you need to win over you're much better off saying look just let anyone feed back to me right that way a you get to have the conversation with all of those stakeholders and understand what their underlying thinking is understand the the problems that they're um facing and maybe even talk them out of it if they've got a dumbass idea but B, you're now the only person that's received all the feedback. So you get to pick and choose what you listen to and what you ignore. So make yourself the center of all feedback. And the last piece of advice I would give um, is if you're dealing in a large organization, like I know a lot of people that listen to this show work in the public sector or in higher education or fields like that, work for big organizations. Here's a piece of advice. Go wide right we always try and close down the number of people that that provide feedback do the opposite go big right go organization wide and the reason that that's good is because now any individual voice is drowned out it becomes about statistics 73% of people said this 28% said this right so if you have one pain in the ass stakeholder you can say well i'm sorry but 75 percent of people had a different opinion and it makes it very hard for them to argue with you so there you go there's a a little bit about how i handle um uh collaboration let's talk about our second sponsor and then i want to give you some resources to go away with um so that you can go and learn a little bit more about some of the things we've been talking about today so our second sponsor is miro um who i think are new new to this season at least i'm trying to remember because i've been using them for so long you kind of forget whether whether you know them personally or whether you know them as a sponsor you have Um, mentioned them before on the show i have i tell you where i've mentioned them is around card sorting um because there there are some there are some card sorting tools out there but to be honest most of them are shit Mm. i mean the biggest one i shouldn't say this should i I shouldn't slag off somebody's hard piece of work the biggest one is optimal sort by optimal workshop and it's just it's just not a very nice user experience um uh, and so I tended to use Miro a lot for for um, this kind of thing. I make my own. Exercise. You make your own? Yep. What do you mean you make your own? I put them up. Um, you know, you can get kind of like A4 um, sheets of stickies, you, you know, like for postal. Oh, labels. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do that when when I'm when I'm with people. But I seem to I, I seem to do quite a lot of remote card sorting where the people aren't in the room with you. Okay. Um, so so in that case, Miro is really good if you haven't cool. used it for that. So anyway, I should say what Miro is first. It's a vis- uh, it's a visual collaboration platform. 
Everything okay. sounds so fancy these days, doesn't it? Um, so it enables cross-functional teams. So it's very appropriate, actually, for, for this particular show. So if you've got like product managers, project managers, <coughs> designers, developers, and marketers, all these people that need to work together, then Miro provides basically a whole load of tools. But it's, it's hard. It's like a, a virtual whiteboard. So you can imagine how well it works for card sorting because it's the equivalent of doing it on a bit of paper, which is what you do. Um, you can share feedback on it. You can create a single um, source of truth for all your projects. You can organize stuff. You can uh, it's, uh, it's a whole suite of stuff that I, I'm biased towards the virtual whiteboard because that's the bit I use the most. But there is actually quite a lot in there that's worth checking out. Any kind of if you need to do collaboration, it's definitely worth having a look at this. So it can um, uh, help teams work together in a more efficient way. Um, especially if you're distributed, which let's be honest, a lot of teams are these days, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you have to walk across multiple channels, multiple time zones, allows you to feel like you're in the same room with one another. Um, so it's got loads of templates that you can use to save time. Um, uh, it integrates with loads of different platforms as well, which is really useful. Things like Zapier, um, Microsoft platforms, prototyping platforms, you name it. They've got dozens of plugins as well. Um, and they're, they're used by you know, pretty much everybody, really. Anybody that's, um, you know, the kind of big name people like Twitter and Netflix and Shopify and Cisco and, you know, it's a it's a good tool, I have to say. Um, so if you want to find out more about it and start collaborating together, Miro.com, M-I-R-O.com. Cool. So actually, that's a great tool. If you're not together, um, uh, you don't, can't get all your people together, Miro is the way to go. But there are other um, uh, links I wanted to point you out as well before we wrap up this show. Um, there's a, if you want to do workshops... Um, My problem with meetings, right, is that everybody discusses, right, whatever, but they're not producing anything. They're not, you know, it's all in the abstract. It's all so vague and woolly, you know, wishy-washy. And also in a meeting, you lose control. You lose control of the conversation and the, the, the things that are being discussed. And very quickly you end up having to do stuff you don't want to. So I'm much more of a fan of workshop exercises, right? I've mentioned a few already, but there is a great website called GameStorming, and actually is an associated book with it as well, um, which gives you loads of different tips of different ways that you can run exercises around this kind of different collaboration methodologies rather than just having a meeting. And I would highly recommend you move away from meetings towards workshops so check out gamestorming it's gamestorming.com if you don't know anything about pair programming i'm going to put together um uh, there's a a great guide i came across for pair programming that i will include in the show notes for today's show i will just check that it's not got a url no it's got a horrendous url because it's on medium so i'm not even going to try and read that one and then I've got three articles that I've written, all of which you can search on on my website. Um, the first one is on customer journey mapping. Um, actually, that's number one on Google. So if you just search customer journey mapping, you'll find it. But you can search on my website as well. 
Another one that you might want to check out, um, which talks about a lot of the other workshop exercises we've covered in this show, is uh, one called Co-Design Success. So if you um, uh, search on my website for the term co-design, you will find this article, which includes a detailed breakdown of things like the user attention point exercise and the uh, waiting room exercise and collaborative mood boarding and all of that kind of stuff. So you want to check that one out. And the final thing is um, uh, I've got a whole article just dedicated to that user attention point exercise um, because that's a particularly good one um, that I use quite a lot. So if you Google um, uh, on my, or search on my uh, website, um, if you search on uh, user attention points, you'll find that one. Okay. Right, Marcus, do you have a joke for us? I do, but I'm slightly worried that I've, I've said this joke previously. It's the, the surrealist, surrealists and changing the light bulb, ringing any bells. Mm, I, to be honest, I don't pay attention to your jokes, so <laughs> this you is, may well have done it before. This is one of my favourites from the, uh, the, the the hiatus we had between our two two series. Um, from James Sheesby Thomas, how many surrealists does it take to change a light bulb? Two, one to hold the giraffe, and the other to fill the bathtub with brightly coloured power tools. No, you haven't told that one before, and that is quite a good one. So that's good. I love that one. Okay, I like that. All right, <laughs> thank yeah. you very much. I thought it was going to be even more surreal than that. I thought, you know, how many how many surrealists does it take to, to screw in a light bulb? Fish. Yes, yeah, so you know, <laughs> lamp post. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I, I like the I like the particular selection. Yes. Good. Okay, next week we're going to mm. be talking about assessing trends and emerging technologies. Um, and I think you'll find me particularly ranty in this upcoming exercise because I think people waste far too much time on things that are not going to go anywhere just because they're trendy and cool at any particular moment. And I shall share many, many examples of this in the next show. So join us again for that. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening to the show. Hope you found it useful. I'll talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Oh, right.